All right, all right, all right. <clears throat> Let's get fired up here. In the early days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho capitalist perspective. And tonight we're going to talk about a foreign film which might be a new thing that we're going to introduce is a series of different movie type categories in a progression, a rotation, if you will. This will be episode 64 of the podcast. It can be found at actualanarchy.com slash 64. We're going to talk about the Korean film, I Saw the Devil. And the Olympics are going on right now in South Korea. So it seemed like the inappropriate time to do this. And it's also one of my friend Robert's favorite movies. So let's get into it. Robert, how you doing, man? Yes, I'm doing great. What's up? I am psyched to finally be doing this movie. Saw this many years ago and always been excited, been like a champion of this movie and uh, finally got you to watch it. And we're going to talk about it tonight. So looking forward to it. Um, for those that don't know this movie, you should watch it beforehand because this is we're going to spoil everything and uh, you don't want to get this one spoiled. You should You should experience it firsthand beforehand. So so are we suggesting to the audience to turn off this episode right now before we get into this and go watch this film? Yeah, we're going to spoil everything. Okay, everything spoils. <laughs> Spoilers all the time. Uh, what else did we want to mention? Um, oh, the, the rotation thing. So like we've been doing some kid movies. We've been doing some more recent movies. We've been doing some cult classics. And now we're doing a foreign film. And we were talking, Robert and I, we, we tend to do that. What? What? talking to him and we were thinking that perhaps we could just do a rotation of four or five different categories and work through those so we sort of have a bit of a structure uh to what people can expect and and also pro provide a little bit of variety a little bit of spice if you will yeah um kid movies i think are definite must to be in there kids are i mean parents should be aware of what they're subjecting their children to and uh you know these 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 Movies are kind of what help shape a child's view of the world, not necessarily super consciously, but more subconsciously, depending on the age of the child. But, you know, they kind of get their ideas from these movies. So it's important for, you know, an analysis of those themes so that parents can make informed decisions about what to have their children wear, watch. So yeah, that's a good one. And then, you know, this, the foreign stuff, I mean, if people aren't aware, some of the best movies in the world are made not in Hollywood or the United States or Canada. Um, a lot of these movies get made overseas, and then some of the best ones get remade for U.S. audiences, but in their original forms, they're just perfectly fine. I don't see the need to remake a lot of these movies, uh, especially, I, I know I saw the movie we're going to talk about tonight is slated to be remade, and I don't know why. It's not like it's really old. It's not like it relies on a whole bunch of special effects that need to be updated. Um, I don't see why a U.S. audience wouldn't be able to understand what's happening or be able to identify with these characters, but maybe they know something I don't know 
Uh, and oh, it's, it is easier to watch a movie without, you know, subtitles. But I know Daniel's brought up the idea of just, you know, hiring really good voice talent to dub the movie. You'd have issues with lips matching. But man, I don't know. I mean, after Spike Lee butchered Old Boy, I just have my my doubts about Hollywood's ability to translate these movies properly. Yeah, we had an experience with uh, a movie, I think, from Sweden, I want to say. It was called Let the Right One In. And it got remade. And I, th- I think that uh, it wasn't nearly as good as the original. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's Sweden. Yeah, that's right. That's the uh, the vampire one with the little girl with the vampire. Yeah, that, that first Swedish one was really good. And then they made a U.S. version that was decent, but not quite as good. So, yeah, it happens a lot because, you know, these movies are essentially idea factories for Hollywood, apparently, because they got the big budgets and they can pay out the monies. Yeah. And I'm all for, you know, this more types of movies like this. I just I just hope they're done well. That's all. Yeah, so perhaps if we include that in our rotation, along with like cult classics that are movies you can go back to again and again, you know, in your movie library for watching and and still enjoying, I think that's a good category. And it's also been suggested, and of course, you know, being a movie review slash film analysis show as we are, uh, to do current movies that are out in theaters now. (laughs) Uh, Oddly enough, that is very difficult for us to do, but perhaps if we include it in, you know, once every five or six episodes, it becomes possible. Yeah, it, and it'll also have to kind of coincide with our rotation. And then if uh, a movie is out at that time that is in our sort of wheelhouse or is kind of controversial or, you know, we see something in that movie that's worth seeing. But I think it yeah, would definitely be good for people, any our listeners, to, you know, get current stuff too. But then we're also all about, you know, finding old gems like this movie that uh, hopefully people will check out. Yeah, and how you're talking about this movie, it's almost as if it's ancient history, but isn't it, you know, just like from 2011 or something like that? Like, it's not super old. Well, it came out in South Korea in 2010, and then there was a U.S., there's a brief U.S. release in 2011. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's probably where I'm getting my information from. All right, well, um, as we have begun doing in this new year, we do the Last Nighters version. So if Robert is ready, we'll kick it on over to that style. That's the normie-friendly one that you can then share with your friends and family if you want to get them some exposure to some of our ideas and concepts that are related to anarcho-capitalism, the NAP, libertarianism in general, but without having the anarchy stank because uh, someone's been going around smashing Starbucks windows and claiming to be anarchist and uh, kind of sullying the name, (laughs) so to speak. So, uh, Robert, are you about ready for that? Let's make this happen, y'all. Alrighty, initiating normie sequence. Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Last Nighters. We are The Last Nighters, Robert and Daniel. I'm Daniel. Robert is on the line with me. How are you doing, Robert? It's true. I am here. I'm here and we're here to talk about a movie. We are, we are, and we're going to talk about a movie from South Korea, and the Olympics are happening in South Korea right now, so it seems timely. Uh, We're going to do a movie called I Saw the Devil, and I'm going to pull up the Google description here. Uh, In the meantime, you can find show notes and more for this episode at lastnighters.com slash seven, the number seven. So here we go. I Saw the Devil came out in 2010 in South Korea. It's a drama slash thriller, two hours and 23 minutes, 7.8 on the IMDb, 80% Rotten Tomatoes, 3.7 out of 5 on Hulu, and 90% of Google users like it. And here is the description. On a dark road, taxi driver, King Chul, comes across a scared female motorist stranded in a broken down vehicle. He pulls over, but not to help her. When the woman's head is discovered in a local river, her devastated fiance, Kim Soo-hyun, a trained secret agent, becomes obsessed with hunting down her killer. Once he finds Kung Chul, Things get twisted. After brutally beating the murderer, Kim lets him go free, and a demented game of cat and mouse begins. I had a U.S. release of uh, 2011, March 4, 2011, a South Korean movie, 12.8 million U.S. dollars in the box office. Robert, what do you think of that Google description right there, my man? Yeah, you're kind of clipping out on me. Sorry for the listeners at home, but um, I think you said, how did I think about that? Uh, I don't see anything really wrong with it. It it, uh, says enough to get you interested, and it doesn't, doesn't spoil anything. So, yeah, good stuff. Um, I just want to note that uh, this movie stars uh, Min Sik Choi, who also starred in Old Boy and is in a bunch of big, big, big South Korean movies. Um, uh, Kim Ji-woon, his first movie uh, was The Chaser, another excellent, excellent movie. They might do that at some point in the future, but um, big actors in this movie for the South Korean film buffs. 
and uh, well done here. All right. And before before the show, you had been telling me this is one of your favorite movies. So um, what I think I'd like to do is let you kind of guide the discussion. I know you, you have some notes and uh, again, spoilers all the time. So if you haven't seen the movie, please just stop playing the show right now. Go watch it and then come back because we're going to talk about some, you know, some pretty key events that uh, you don't want to know are coming uh, if you haven't seen the movie yet. So how's that sound to you, Robert? And, and maybe you can drag us through the categories a bit and uh, just have the driver's seat, man. Okay. Well, the opening of this movie, I just want to mention the artisticness of this film. Um, Kim Ji-Woon, I think, in the, especially in the beginning, is in full-on like Coen Brothers slash Tarantino mode. It opens very beautifully on this like snowy night and there's this soft music playing and it's just a very good... Um, setting up the tone and the, just the feel and the vibe of the whole of the whole thing before it gets, you know, takes a hard right turn and turns into kind of, uh, you know, in, in lesser hands, this would be kind of like a slasher movie because it does feature a serial killer and then kind of like the super cop guy who goes out for revenge on this serial killer. Um, you know, in you know, a U.S. like horror movie, the serial killer would kill a bunch of people. And at the very end, like the attractive girl would end up killing the guy through some, almost through no fault of her own, but or who knows what, but she would come up with some reason and actually sort of kill him. In this movie, uh, it's more about the revenge and the, re- the, 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 the mindset of the person seeking revenge. And does he go too far? Does it change him irreparably? Of the mistakes he makes, can he live with those mistakes? You know, um, it's so much smarter and, I don't know, just brilliant than your average whatever crap horror movie that we get over here in the United States. Now, I would add that in your summary of, of how U.S. films get made, then after the the girl accidentally kills the, the villain, the villain would do something to indicate that they're not quite dead. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, you got to come back nine more times, right? Because you can't let a good idea die, or at least a, a, an idea that makes money, even if it's not... Yeah. Not particularly a good idea. Franchise, baby. Franchise. That's right. Cockadoodle profit, baby. So um, one of the cool things that this movie does is that it kind of flips your expectations on its head a bit. Um, when the super cop kind of gets in, he's just like a trained killer guy, like a super soldier, like special forces guy who's working a bodyguard situation and anything. Anyway, when he becomes... You know, when, when the, he becomes the predator, right? He becomes the hunter of the guy. Then the movie shifts to the killer's perspective as he's being hunted. And that's something you don't really get in like a U.S. movie. And it, I, think, I thought it was really interesting the way it kind of played out. You see his worry. You see him getting angry. You see him like feeling like the victim. But then you get the catharticness from the audience point of view of seeing all the, the pain and suffering that he goes through. And one of the things I wanted to talk to Daniel about was, A, what the title of the movie meant to him. And at what point does the serial killer or does the, uh, the super cop guy, the protagonist, does he ever cross the line for you? And was there ever a point at which you would have tapped out? All right. Well, let's take the uh, first question first. The I saw the devil. What does it mean to me? Well, I consider this sort of a... Um... A Breaking Bad situation over the course of the seasons. He goes from happy-go-lucky science nerd teacher to fucking Heisenberg, right? And mm-hmm. over the course of time, you know, he actually develops into this more uh, evil and dangerous person. He is the danger, as they say. And I think that's what they're kind of doing here, where they're letting Supercop kind of take on the role of allowing his um, his anger to take hold of him, like giving in to his hate to use some Star Wars speak, and become a monster himself uh, to um, to fight the monster, right? And so I think right. that's kind of what they're shooting for here, and that is, you know, that he sees evil in this serial killer guy, but then he also sees that he is similar to the serial killer, and he's starting to enjoy it. And so it's sort of like looking in a mirror, you know, he sees himself in this other in his in his opponent and he sees that he has to come to his level uh in an effort to fight him you know the fire with fire kind of thing indeed and so was there a point at which i mean you're saying that he really becomes the monster and i would agree with that to a certain level he kind of does stoop to his level and in order to exact justice as he sees it because he's the one really that i think has any kind of claim on what justice is at this point he's the one that's been wronged the most i mean the the father of the uh, of the woman that was killed also but he's really in the position to extract justice as opposed to 
handing him over to any kind of justice system where they put him in jail for any certain amount of time. And the best you can feel about it is that, okay, well, he wouldn't be out able to hurt more people. But here, he takes the justice into his own hands and is able to extract what he feels is required in order for justice to be served. And my question then, again, to repeat it, is, is there some point, and you kind of said so with your answer, but at what point would you have said, okay, this is, he's going too far? Now, because he also makes a mistake, right? But I'm not asking about the mistake yet, which allows the serial killer to escape and to go and kill more people. But does he go too far in terms of getting revenge? Well, I mean, it's a... It's a good question. I, I think that the mistake is almost inextricable to the going too far area because his going too far is the being a cat playing with his victim, you know, playing with his food. I think that that is not only his mistake, but also his moment where he goes too far. Like he's no longer just exacting revenge or seeking justice. Now he's kind of... He tor he's torturing him. He's torturing him, but then he wants to let him go, uh, but just to, to hunt him more. You know, and then he's got yeah. the, the GPS thing on him. He's made him ingest it. And, and I forget at some point the serial killer discovers that that's what's going on. And then he goes, get some uh, some diuretics to get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, he, he, eats, he ingests some laxatives. Right. When he kills the uh, the pharmacist. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, for me, it, it's it's inextricably tied with his mistake is, is where he's gone too far. And I would add, and this is an interesting point that I wanted to ask you about is at what point does he bear any responsibility for the actions of the serial killer who he has now agitated and then released out into the world against unsuspecting and innocent parties? Right, and that is, I think, the crux of his guilt, right? Because he sees himself as wanting to get revenge, and in order for him to get revenge and to see that he's punishing this guy enough to put him through the things he put his victims through, right? That he needs to capture him and beat him repeatedly only to have him, you know, kind of patch him up so that, and then release him again to, so he can do it again. So he can feel the terror of being hunted and being at this guy's mercy, you know, just being completely helpless against this like super predator guy. Right. But it doesn't but, work because yeah. the guy doesn't care. Right. He's not exactly the best. Yeah. He's not terrified really. He just kind of gets angry <laughs> and thinks that he's like, you know, found like a, a mirror image sort of like, you know, we're both really good at this and you messed with the wrong guy sort of thing. You don't know what I'm capable of. And he turns it around on the, the super soldier guy and finds more people that he cares about that he can harm. So your question, does he bear any responsibility for not just killing this guy when he had a chance to essentially, right? So if he had, first of all, if he had just straight up killed him, of course, he wouldn't have the movie. But if he had just killed him when he first catches him, would you have said, you know, dusted your hands off and said, hey, justice is done? Everything's cool. This is exactly how I would want things to play out in some sort of a Encapistan type of world. Well, I mean, that's a bit of a tough question, but yeah, I mean, kind of, you know, it's yeah. It's, okay. It's, I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> I mean, it's almost, it's almost Hatfield McCoy territory here. Uh, but there are of course, social norms and pressures that would, I think, prevent most of those things from happening. I mean, clearly this guy is a psychotic killer. Um, I think that you would have to have pretty good confirmation that it's the guy. And in the movie, of course, you know, it is obvious he's found his wife's um, engagement ring or it's, is it his fiance or his wife? Fiance, right? I believe it's his, yeah, his fiance and she's, she's pregnant. Right. But yeah, it's but, engagement ring. Yeah, he finds the ring. And then he, of course, um, when he confronts the serial killer for the first time, he's in the act of raping slash about to murder another victim. Right. So, yeah, there's no pretty doubt. Much confirmed that this is a bad dude. Yeah, this is, right. the, this is the fucking guy. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I, I think that uh, in that sense, you're not dealing with someone who's going to be rehabilitated. You're not dealing with, um, you know, a monopoly court system that's going to actually provide any level of justice other than, like you said, maybe preventing him from being out on the streets. So, yeah, I, th I, I think that the immediate thing would have been justified uh, but also then you don't have a movie. So there's that. Right, right. Okay, so then on to the next point, because we're in agreement on that one. Does he bear responsibility for any, not like total responsibility, right? Because, of course, the killer is ultimately responsible. He not only is the one that is killing everybody, but it's it's the same kind of argument where, you know, the government will arrest somebody, try somebody, put them in jail, and they get back out, and they commit another crime. And then, you know, people want to say, well, then the government somehow bears responsibility for this guy's crimes being out. And I would say, of course, it's a tough question. To what level? I mean, it's probably going to be a different answer for anybody. 
I would say ultimately they're not responsible. You are not responsible for the actions of another. But is that going to prevent you from feeling guilt over, man, I had it in my hands and I could have ended it all, but I had to, you know, satisfy my inner sense of justice and that got a couple more people killed. Yeah, man, it's a it's a tough question. I agree because there is self-ownership and you're responsible for your own actions. But at the same time, he did have control over this person and he wound him up and then released him, allowing him to, to wreak havoc. And it's almost akin to, um, you know, in Logan, Professor X was having these brain uh, brain bomb bomb yep. action. And, and Logan's like taking him into Las Vegas, you know, like three million people might die. Um, I think yep. that Logan bears some responsibility for putting all those people at risk. And uh, I think that that's what's going on here. And I almost uh, uh, want to say that because the serial killer had done such an egregious thing that the super cop uh, had, you know, had the uh, maybe not the moral right, but he had the motivation to track this guy down, confine him, basically, you know, control him. Right. Take him in his, into his possession in some respect and then releasing him uh, when when, you know, he's he's clearly a murdering asshole. Um, yeah. Yeah. You 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 had him and you voluntarily decided to release him. You know, it's not like he so, escaped. You know, it's like you chose to do this. You chose to right. let him go. He, he absolutely voluntarily released him for sure. So would you charge Supercop with a crime? Well, I mean, are we talking in Kapistan? Are we talking monopoly justice system provided by, uh, you know, a Well, I mean, clearly there would be some kind of social repercussions, I think, in, uh, in Kapistan, where, you know, if the truth came out that he released him on purpose, there would be absolutely people making, you know, judgments on whether or not they wanted to associate with him and condemnation and that sort of thing. But you're saying he bears responsibility for those murders, the murder of the pharmacist, and the father and the the sister, which would have been his family-in-law, but they weren't quite because they weren't married yet. Then if he's somehow responsible, then is he guilty of any crime? Yeah, I don't know. That's a tough one. Um, I mean, are we talking in a existing legal structure or, I mean, if if, if we're going into an Ancapistan scenario where um, common law is sort of a basis of building upon prior decisions that are, uh, you know, in a bit of a market situation. I think that there would be found some way to address this grievance because, as you said, there would be very upset parties who would be looking at this guy and blaming him for releasing this killer out onto, you know, onto innocent people. Right. So and you can't say that it would be a negligent situation because he clearly wasn't negligent. He voluntarily, intentionally released the guy. You know what do they call that? Malicious? Maybe malicious or you know, like some sort of a manslaughter type situation. I don't know. Yeah. But I, way, I, I would, bad, I would, have call. To, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it was obviously a mistake. Um, and he obviously regrets it at the end of the movie, but I think it is interesting that, yeah, these things would sort themselves out. I mean, as often as these sorts of situations would come up, I don't think they'd come up too much, but yeah, um, it would be, it would be sorted out in a kind of a market type situation. Um, and the best and the best, the resolution would win out. All right. So, what did you think of uh, all the serial killers in this movie? All the cannibals and just the murders. I feel like this movie was put together by the uh, South Korea Tourism Board. Yeah, it certainly makes it look like a very dangerous uh, country to be in because anyone you run into is potentially a serial killer. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, there, there, if you haven't seen the movie, and I don't know why you wouldn't if you're listening this far, but yeah, there are, um, let's see, one, two, three, four five serial killers portrayed in this movie if you count the the girl cannibal yeah she's and then the taxi driver part of that yeah 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 so i mean it, it made sense that the um you know the main antagonist would know the uh the cannibals but the inclusion of the taxi driver scene i thought was kind of kind of wild and kind of like that's kind of a coincidence i mean although he is kind of walking out in the middle of the night and he just so happens to find um people like him but uh Anyway, did that did that scene bother you in any way? It was a little too coincidental. Yes, absolutely. And this was one of the things I was withholding from you prior to doing the episode, and that is this killed the movie for me. Uh oh. This was so ridiculous that he's going to A get picked up by two guys who just murdered a cabbie and then discover, oh, that you don't look like that picture. Oh, you're that guy. Or you're you know, you're you're up to no good, and then they start stabbing each other in the cab. Um and, right. and then to come upon the cannibals who he knows for some reason and they're fans of his yet the police don't yeah. know who this guy is or whatever 
Um, right. But they are currently at some rich family's house, taking over the house and murdering the family and eating them. So right. how does Mr. Cilier, serial Killer, who seems to be aimlessly trying to get, you know, somewhere, I don't know where, uh, run into them? <laughs> Did I miss something? Yeah, it, uh, well, no, I mean, I... I gave the the cannibals a pass because, yeah, I mean, it, it's weird that they are all in this little area together. But I would assume that they kind of know each other, and it's clear that they know each other, and that they, you know, are into the same things. And maybe they've been in that house for a while. It looked like they'd eaten many people. But the taxi drive um, situation, yeah, there's really no excuse for that, um, other than to show some wild. I mean, these movies, these movies are famous for their wild. Um, Slashy, hitty, punchy, kicky type fights. If you watch enough of these South Korean movies, especially movies like Old Boy, this, and uh, a movie called um, New World, there aren't a lot of gun fights. There are some, and there are movies that feature a lot of gunfights. But for the most part, um, guns are like highly, highly, super highly regulated in South Korea. So a lot of the thugs will fight with knives and you know whatever they have, bats and that sort of thing. And it's kind of a big deal when somebody has a gun, and it makes for more interesting fights. And it makes for an excuse to have your, your um, combatants be really super bloody. There's an elevator scene in New World that is very much like the taxi scene in I Saw the Devil, where there's just somebody with the pump and squirting the blood all over everything, all the time, everywhere. Um, for visually and for the effect, I, I liked it. But yeah, it doesn't make sense in the story. It's it's far too convenient, and ultimately, it's not necessary. the The taxi scene can be removed from the movie, and you it you know it's probably just a tighter, more cohesive movie. Um, but I still want it in there just for the the mood and the setting and the feel of the movie of being kind of this chaotic, I don't know, kind of this chaotic world where life is just you know worthless. And there's these really twisted people and this um, guy is just kind of descend. The super cop guy is descending into this world of madness and, you know, these, these psychopathic killers. So for the story, yeah, it doesn't make sense. For the tone and the setting, I like it. But I understand why it ruined the movie for you and you're not wrong. All right. So what's the redeeming quality? I mean, you, you say you like the scene and you like that there's revenge happening, but you're you're giving this a pass. So what is so strong? Like, what's the key thing that, that salvages the movie for you? The entire movie? I mean, one scene, one bad scene does not ruin a movie for me. I mean, this whole movie I thought was fantastic. Still still holds up, I mean, upon multiple viewings. Um, the fact that it's a psychological thriller, revenge thriller. First of all, any kind of revenge thriller really hits me personally because I'm, I'm a big fan of justice. And, you know, these movies always start out with some horrific injustice. And then the nature of revenge and how it changes a person and how it feels. I mean, I wouldn't say that the protagonist in this movie is any kind of a winner. He's horrifically changed. Not only has he lost his fiance, but he has done horrible things. And he has to live with the guilt knowing that he released this guy to kill more people that he loves. So he feels partially responsible for that. Um, he's like a walking wounded at the end of this movie. And there is a huge change in his character from the beginning to the end. So there's a big old arc. Um, all the actions have consequences, real world, real consequences. So, yeah, it's a movie that doesn't pull any punches. Maybe it's a little bit weird in some parts. And, you know, there's maybe a scene that doesn't make sense or two. But, um, yeah, I think this movie is just really well done. Fantastic. I'm glad that you feel differently about it. I like it when we don't always like the same thing. Like in The Lion King. <laughs> Yeah, like in The Lion King, where you liked that dumb movie, and I was right, and I hated it. And you were, you liked it, and you were wrong. All right. Well, excellent. So one other scene that really bothered me, and this was the um, serial killer guy is about to turn himself in, and he's in the middle of the street. And then Supercop breaks the door off of his vehicle and then does this J-turn, like, reverse 180 spin to catch the guy in the door and then kidnap him. Yep. Uh, I know that's supposed to be like super whiz bang, awesome effects and, and stunts and stuff, but it seemed really dumb to me. Like, what was the point of doing that? Well, he had to get him. He didn't want to, you know, let him capture, be captured by the cops. Because then, then the serial killer guy was going to turn him in, right? Uh, I don't think he was worried about that at I that th point. I, I thought that was the thing. Like, he was going to, his nefarious plot to, you know, use police resources in evil ways, seeking his own justice was going to be discovered. I, uh, that's interesting that you got that. I very much 
got the feeling that this guy was like, no, I, I'm not going to release this, the justice in this case to other people. I am seeing this to the end. Justice may be done, that the heavens fall. I didn't see that as any kind of self-preservation move on the part of the super cop guy. Okay. Well, because there was that moment. There was that moment in the hospital where he's confronting the cannibals. Yep. And the cannibal says, well, here's what he's going to do. He's going to kill anyone that you know, and then he's going to turn himself in. Right. To and, escape him. To ultimately win. Right. And, and, I, and I thought that it was also implied because when he gets the bug from the tech nerd guy, and then the tech nerd guy, you see him like once or twice again throughout the film. Um, it's, it's almost as if, oh, you might get caught using resources inappropriately. Right. And I am sure he would have. But I think that was so far down on his give a shit list at that point. Yeah, well, I thought there was this whole buildup to that was going to lead to he's going to be found out to, as the monster that he has become torturing this guy and, and releasing him back into the wild. And that that would put um, the uh, super cop guy in some deep shit. Oh, oh, oh probably undoubtedly. Um, although, yeah, I mean, he's also a cop and, you know, cops cover for other cops all the time. You know this. They never get in trouble. So, rare, rare, sure the rare the, example. The rare example gets made. Very, very few. You know, every once when there's a huge scandal, huge scandal, they'll throw one cop under the bus and say, "Hey, it was that guy. He did it." But nine times out of well, ninety-nine times out of a hundred, they we got the guy who did it. They capture the main serial killer guy and they blame every single thing on him. And you can't trust anything he says. And he's just an evil guy, and then they, you know, throw him in jail or they kill him or whatever. And then Supercop is exonerated or celebrated as a hero. And the truth never actually comes out about what actually happened. That is, I think, a more realistic situation in the real world. I, I tend to agree with you there. So let's shift this over to, we're not really talking about categories in this one, apparently. And that's fine. That's fine. I think our listeners are, they know by now that when we say stuff, we don't really necessarily mean we're going to stick to the script. Um, <laughs> yeah. We've talked about the character arc of the super cop let's talk about the serial killer guy because he changes too and i don't fully understand his motivations even at the beginning uh do you want to yeah. talk about him a little bit because it seems like he's an older guy you know he's probably middle-aged and he's been doing this for a while and i don't understand why he's abducting women why he's chopping them up and why um like halfway through the film now it becomes like kind of rapey whereas earlier he seems to have no interest in that at all yeah, uh, this movie didn't spend any time explaining the motivations of the serial killer. And I don't think that's super important. I mean, I think it might trivialize. If they had said, you know, well, he was abused when he was a child or blah, blah, blah. I think it might have kind of trivialized what he was. I kind of like that he was unexplained. Because um, you're right, he, he, his motivations aren't clear. I mean, usually a serial killer, usually, from what I understand, um, follows a very strict method right? Like they always decapitate them and they always take the toenails off and they always, you know, pickle the calves or whatever. There's always some sort of uh, ritual, you know, nature to it. Like everybody's got their own way. Like uh, the bind, torture, kill guy. He would always bind them, then torture them and then kill them. Um, this guy, this guy, you're right. He does a couple different things and it's not clear what his ritual is or his deal is. Um, I did appreciate, though, that he was a predator that had a job where he could have easy access to, you know, prey. This is the case with most predators. Um, if you see a lot of sex offenders, you'll often see them in, like, teacher roles or, like, uh, government roles where they're in charge of people, charge of children. Because, you know, where do spiders make their webs? Where the flies are? So I, I appreciated that he drove a bus for a school. And then he would go drive around and look for people in you know, need of assistance. And if they struck his particular fancy, you know, he would kill them. And they were young, vulnerable women. Because ultimately, you know, he's a coward. And these people are often cowards. If they, you know, they're not going to charge into a group of men and threaten to kill anybody or anything like that. They're predators who prey on the weak in their most vulnerable times. So I thought that was really good. But maybe it would have been a little bit stronger movie, I agree, if he had a certain technique or a thing or whatever. Maybe it would have helped you understand them as a person. But I kind of like the idea that he was like this chaotic psychopath. And the whole movie is kind of chaotic and psychopathy. And, you know, there's this normal dude who has to wade into those waters. And then that's helped his descent into his own kind of madness. Because at the end of the movie, he ends up not only killing him, but he makes the guy's family experience 
his death with the whole guillotine door situation. Now, for you, was that crossing a line? Because, yeah, I kind of feel like it was crossing a line for me. Um, the, the line that was crossed for me there was how dumb that was. Oh, really? You did not? You just thought it was stupid? All right. Well, I'll, I'll mention this, and then we'll, we'll go back to the character a little bit. Yeah, it was dumb because they've got this contraption set up to where the door opens and then it's going to do the guillotine on the guy and his head's going to roll out to his family who by the way don't like him um and he's gone crazy and abandoned his son with his parents and his parents uh seem to be rather well they 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 bicker and fight and it it seems to portray that he didn't have a, a good childhood but he's in there saying no don't open the door no leave the door alone no don't open the door and what do they do they open the door I'm sorry, but yeah, okay. that's dumb because they can hear him, and he's saying, no, don't open the door, so why, why open the door? Well, to be fair, he doesn't say why, but yeah, and, and he also has a thing in his mouth, so they can't quite under, you know, hear what he's saying. I mean, his voice would be muffled. And yes, we're, we have the benefit of subtitles. Yes. But they don't. <laughs> I don't so know. we understand what he's saying, but he's got this rope in his mouth, and you know, maybe they don't. It just seems so, yeah, I understand contrived. what you're saying with the stupid thing, but I, I gave it a pass for, for that reason. Okay. It just seemed a little contrived, and uh, I don't know. I, I didn't see how it related to – I mean, yeah, the, the first victim that kicks this whole thing off, she got decapitated. Um, I mean, I guess that's the callback, right? That's like the closing the loop on the thing. Well, I mean, put yourself in the protagonist's shoes. The, the, the guy is basically begging you to kill him multiple times. So how do you get any kind of revenge if the guy wants to die? Well, and yes, yes, he doesn't, he doesn't care about anything, right? He's abandoned his family. So obviously he doesn't really super care about them. But what other choice does he have? You got to do something. And I, I got to, I'm saying it, this character, the protagonist at this point in the, the, the story, he feels that he's got to do something to exact some kind of punishment on the guy. So that was the best, I guess that was the best he could do, was kind of involve the family to, I don't know, maybe there's some kind of a cultural element to, you know, Korean families that maybe we're not super privy to. I mean, I don't know, even if I hated my dad, I wouldn't want to cause his death by opening his door. I mean, clearly he's not morally responsible for opening the door that does the thing that makes his head chop off. That's on the protagonist guy. But still, that's going to traumatize you. <laughs> I opened the door that chopped my dad's head off and then the head rolled to my feet. That's kind of messed you up. Maybe it's not the best thing. And I think he crossed the line there, but it was his, I think it was showing his character, the descent of his character. I mean, that he was willing to do that. So long as you don't sell the dad to a blind kid, I think it's okay. <laughs> Our dad's heads are falling off. Take, take, take the head back on and then sell it to a blind kid in a wheelchair. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, we're, we're, I think we've, we're crossing some lines here. Oh geez. All right. So the the serial killer, he seemed to have this uh, cachet to him, his this presence to him, to where he was a Hannibal Lecter style like godfather of serial killers. You know, the cannibal dude was looking up to him and and all that. It almost yeah. was like um, he was this revered like, oh, I can't believe you know I'm meeting my my hero or my mentor or somebody famous. You know. Right. Right. Um, but I don't know how that happens in in real. I, I, I mean, I, I can't imagine that would happen in real life, and the guy wouldn't get caught. Um, but you know, when he first encounters the serial killer guy in the greenhouse, and he's just like, "Oh, you're a cop, huh? All right, well, I'll deal with you." You know, <laughs> I don't know. It just seemed like um, he was a, a a badass who didn't care about anything, right? And at the end, when he's on the guillotine and he's like begging for him to kill him, and then begging for his life, and then I think he's just playing the super cop, you know, probably because then he reveals he's like, man, I don't don't give a shit about anything at all whatsoever. And you can't kill me. You know, I will never die. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, his head, his head fell off. Um, (laughs) But but yeah, Uh I don't know. I just uh, I don't know what else to say about it. I I, I do see why you liked it. I did like the mood and the music. And and I guess we can start wrapping this up because we're about uh, 45 minutes into this episode here. so there was a good ambiance, and, and it's a well-done movie for the most part, but I think that there are some extra superfluous things that don't necessarily fit very well. And, I mean, it was already almost two and a half hours, so you could have easily cut out the taxi stuff and cut out some of this other stuff and still had a pretty tight and cohesive movie. So that's my take on it. I think it might have been and fair, the movie. Fair enough. Um, you know, it's not going to work for everybody. Certain decisions are made when you're making a movie that are going to appeal to some people and not appeal to other people. 
I think all you can do as a director is tell a story that you want to tell and please yourself because yeah, there's just no, there's no pleasing everybody. Um, but yeah, I, I think your opinion is absolutely valid. Um, I happen to disagree with it, but I think you're, you know, it's fine. You're, you're, you have your reasons and I think they're good reasons. Um, I happen to like my reasons and that's cool. Um, I, I'm, I do want to ask you though, having seen this movie, are you interested in seeing more movies like this or is this kind of turning you off to the whole genre? I would say I am interested in seeing more foreign films and more films like this. I did recently watch the Ip Man trilogy, and we also have Ung Bak, which I need to watch. And those have been um, those were recommended highly. And of the foreign films I have seen in the past, I have been impressed with many of them. So I think it's a it's a good category, and it's uh, one I will continue to be interested in, especially when there are movies that that have something cool about them, like they're recommended for a particular reason from someone I respect, such as you, or, or say, um, like Mike C, who's been a guest on our, some of our other episodes. Sure. Awesome. Well, great. Um, yeah, I don't have a whole lot more to say other than we can talk about the craft, I suppose, a bit. Um, I thought it was an incredibly well-made movie, well-acted, although the, uh, the main character is kind of like plays with a stoic kind of guy, and that's kind of a running theme in almost every South Korean movie I've seen. Um, the villain has way more emotional range then the hero, hero for some reason is always this stoic um, dude. Although you know, there's a fair you know, the protagonist in this movie does break down at the end. But um, and and when he sees you know the scene with the uh, the ring and knowing that his wife has been murdered or his his fiance has been murdered. I mean, I, I'm saying when let's let's do this the tear jerk category. Were there any tears jerked for you? Because I did tear up several times, especially during when he finds the ring. No, no tears. Sorry. Okay. Fair enough. It didn't really get me in the feels, though. I did feel dread for the uh, for the woman in the car because it is a little bit suspenseful. You know, you don't really know what's what to expect, and I like that that they sort of built that up. Um, but I do have another critique of the the killer, and that is he's hitting people in the head with hammers and pipes. Any one of those blows could kill someone, and if his goal is to just incapacitate them and then put them in a plastic bag and then torture them and eviscerate them and cut their heads off. Uh, I think that he was going about it the wrong way. <laughs> Not a critique of technique for the serial killer by Daniel. Excellent. Yeah, I know that's awkward, right? It just got weird. You're uh, doing it wrong, dude. You gotta, you gotta hit him. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but you get what I'm saying, right? Like, it just seemed like any one of those blows could have just ended that particular scene. And if his point was to kind of get off on it or accomplish some ritual type thing, like you were talking about before, um, I don't think that he was doing it in a way that would have been likely to consistently satisfy whatever urge he was trying to uh, trying to scratch, you know? Right, right. Well, I mean, maybe they're making a point on, you know, the uh, the motives of a serial killer. You know, we just can never really truly know them. Um, I don't know. Uh, there's another movie, the the first movie by the same director called The Chaser, which deals with a very similar subject matter. Um, maybe you'll like that one a little bit better. I don't know. There's there's definitely more discussion of the motivations of the killer in that movie. Um, it's another kind of revenge thriller that um, doesn't have a big, sweet, you know, I think it, the beauty, I think, of these foreign films for me is there isn't some sweet, sappy, happy ending. Now, it ultimately, it's not like super satisfying. Like you don't get that cathartic feel of, yes, the good guys win. But it's more of a realistic take on things uh, that I appreciate. And maybe that's not translating into box office success in the United States, but that's just the way it's going to have to be. Yeah. Well, anyway. let's uh, let's do our final uh, rating and review and uh, wind down this uh, episode of The Last Nighters. Number seven, lastnighters.com slash seven is where you can find the show notes page and more. All right. So uh, this movie stays at the top of my list for revenge thrillers. Um, maybe I haven't seen all the good ones yet, but I do enjoy a good revenge thriller. If you know of a good revenge thriller, let me know. Um, hit me up at uh, robert at actualanarchy.com or Trumpster at Twitter. Um, this movie is like a 9.2 for me. Um, it's not a perfect movie, but it is so close to a perfect like revenge thriller movie for me that, yeah, it, it ultimately completely earns its rating. Um, excellent performances, well-made. I don't know what they're going to do with the remake. They're probably going to have to cut out all the blood, um, probably cut the taxi scene for the American remake. Uh, might turn the cannibals into 
Oh, maybe still have them be cannibals, but you're not going to see all the body parts and the whatnots. And maybe the scene of the guy dragging the girl and whatnot. Now she's about to be murdered. And who knows how it's going to be sanitized for uh, Western audiences, but we'll see. Um, I think the original holds up, and I encourage everybody to watch it if you haven't seen it. I don't know why you'd be listening. Why did I say that? Who knows? Anyway, hope you enjoyed it, and hope you enjoyed us uh, blathering on about it. Daniel? All right, well, well said. Well, I'll just give a summary of, of what I was saying before, and that is, in general, I like the mood and ambiance of the film. I think it's well made, uh, but there are just so many leaps of coincidence and uh, a lack of understanding of, of what is driving this the, the psychopathic killer, which I guess is a, a bit of a um, kind of it answers its own question. <laughs> Maybe uh, you're just not supposed to know. Uh, so after talking with you, my rating is actually higher than I was expecting. So I'm going to give it a seven out of uh, 10 on our episode seven of The Last Nighters. So seven for me. All right. So you, you talked it up. Yeah, baby. I convinced you a little bit. I like it. And you also convinced me, too. Um, I originally, you know, I worried that the, the, the coincidence of the taxi scene, I, it kind of bugged me a little bit, but not as much as it bugged you. But having you talk about it a little bit did kind of, you know, throw me like, yeah, maybe it's, it's not necessary and it could be done without it. So kudos to you as well, sir. I want to thank everybody for listening. It's been an honor and a white privilege talking to you tonight. And uh, that's it for me. All right. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode of The Last Nighters. And uh, good night from last night. Continuing the transmission, we've got the documents. Still doing the Actual Anarchy episode 64 on I Saw the Devil. Uh, we've probably got a couple of wrap-up things to talk about uh, before we go into what could potentially be Kathleen Turner Overdrive. And Robert, one of the things I wanted to talk about was the potential new show that we may be introducing, uh, and it might be for this movie. And yeah. It's a bit confusing. It's We're still fleshing this out in our heads, but as as you are probably aware, if you're a listener of the show, that Around New Year, we change the format. We try to tighten it up, do a shorter version, and also have a normally friendly version to share, which you just heard, the last nighters. And one of the one of the prices of doing that was guests. We we tried to have a guest on, and it, it was a great episode and a lot of fun with a good friend of ours. But it's just a lot more work to try to herd, you know, three or four cats instead of just the two cats, Robert and I. So we feel like the um, current show format doesn't really work well with guests, but we do want to continue to have guests in some capacity. So, Robert, do you want to take over from here what we've sort of decided to try? Yeah, so it's been a constant struggle for Daniel. You know, he has limited time. I've got limited time. We've all had limited time. And we'll wax and wane on, hey, we need to, I need to spend less time doing this. But then <laughs> we'll get an idea of another way to spend more time doing this. And so we're going to definitely give it a shot. I don't know if it'll last forever or if we're going to do it for every episode. But um, probably for this first episode, we are going to have a, a show called Boys Not Out. And what it is, is everybody on the show has to self-identify as a male for the period of the show. We want to be as exclusive and offensive and misogynistic as possible. And it doesn't mean you can't be female for the rest of your life. But for that time that you're on the show, you're going to be a man. And we are going to just kind of be hanging out and getting a chance to say things we forgot to say during the regular show. It's probably going to be longer. It's going to be more of a hangout. We're going to be like free form talking about whatever. We'll probably go down rabbit trails and discuss things that are completely unrelated to the movie. Kind of like, kind of like our original episodes. If you go back and listen to some older stuff that we did, we kind of just kind of talk about whatever. And the, the movie was more of a, a launching pad for whatever discussion we would have. Now we're doing this more kind of distilled, cohesive thing where we really focus on the movie for an hour. And then this will give us a chance to kind of spread our wings and talk about whatever comes to mind. Um, the guests will have seen the movie, but, you know, the entire two-hour, three-hour discussion won't necessarily be about entirely the movie. Um, I intend to, you know, bring up maybe some topics if it's organic of what's going on in the world this week. Uh, maybe so... Maybe some, who knows, some kind of libertarian position stuff or complain about communist stuff or some, you know, economic stuff. Uh, who knows what we'll talk about? Uh, it usually should be a good conversation. It's always interesting. I'm always interested. So that's essentially what it's going to be. Um, we're hoping that we're going to have uh, Mr. Patrick McFarland from Liberty Weekly and his lovely wife on for this first episode. But we'll be talking about this movie. 
and who knows what else. And uh, we're going to be recording that uh, hopefully tomorrow night. Yeah, I think that's uh, kind of the, the rough plan at the moment. And um, as you were saying, it's it's going to be more freeform and allow us to reintroduce guests and, and be able to bounce ideas off of each other and just follow rabbit trails and be super organic and just have a real loose hangout type uh, conversation that doesn't, and this is key, doesn't require any editing. <laughs> yes. Uh, and and that was that was the big thing for me was that when we had guests trying to fit it into a show, um, I would have to edit and snip it and cut and move a bunch of pieces around, and that takes hours and hours. And um, this new method that we're going to experiment with, I think, will help solve uh, many of those issues. So that's kind of what we're what we're about at the moment is just producing additional ways to um, get the message out, and that's why we have the last nighters version. That's why we tighten up actual anarchy. And now we're introducing Boys Night Out, which um, I don't know if, if you guys are aware, but when Robert and I are, are having conversations, we use a recording software that uh, when he speaks, it turns the video of him into um, a blank screen. We just today, well, not just today, well, recently, we figured out how to make this connection happen so that that doesn't occur. And also now he would be able to participate in live streams. So it is uh, a chance that Boys Night Out will be live and then, of course, remain on YouTube as a uh, video to be able to watch. Indeed. So that's exciting. It won't have me like a, like a Trumpster image or my face, but it's the next step up as far from me having like proper 21st century Internet and being able to uh, participate as everybody else does. Yeah. Why don't you join us in the 21st century there, you Luddite? <laughs> Technology is evil. We should all live back in caves. All right. You know, well, let's uh, let's wind this one down for Actual Anarchy because we are over an hour now and we are trying to tighten these things up. But uh, I do like spreading, you know, some inside baseball information with your Actual Anarchy audience. And uh, you can find uh, show notes and more on this at actualanarchy.com slash 64. We will post the Boys Night Out version as an embedded video in there. Or you can also find it on libertarianunion.com or on our YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash actualanarchy. So... Uh, I say good night. Uh, check out show notes actualanarchy.com slash 64. I'll hand the mic to Robert, and then we'll go into some Kathleen Turner overdrive. Man, I wonder what the cave market would be like if we all just decided we wanted to live in caves. Like, people would be digging out caves, and there'd be primo cave content, <laughs> cave developers, and, oh, man, everybody would want to live in, I wonder, what, what's the maximum population of people that could live in caves? I'll turn, like, troglodytic, skin would get really pale. It'd be like a real time machine situation. <laughs> anyway. Okay, thanks for listening, everybody. It's been an honor and a privilege. The Chipmunks. C-H-I-P-M-U-N-K. We're the Chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do